0: Welcome to the Human Centred Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Colm Hay. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to incredible people from around the globe. And today I'm particularly excited because not only am I talking to another former police officer... But she's literally only a stone's throw from me. She's only a few miles down the road uh, in uh, Birmingham, or was in Birmingham. She lives on the outskirts, now lives in a beautiful town called Warwick. Is Warwick a town or a city now? Yeah, Warwick's a town, yeah. Uh, It's a beautiful town. And if you've never been to Warwick and you're in the UK, you've got to go and visit. It's got Warwick Castle, which is one of the best kept castles in the UK. I've been goodness knows how much, but it's also a nice part of the world. It really is. So, Hannah, great to have you on here. You were a a police officer with West Midlands Police. Uh, Is that the second largest police force, I think it is, in the UK? it is, yeah. So, uh, West Midlands Police, um, back in uh, 2015, was it, that you left the police service? Do you want to just tell us your story about the police service? So, I joined in
1: 1998. Um, I was only 21. You know everything, don't you, when you're 21, (laughs) Carl? So... No, that was it. Was and
0: you're like you're like the most indestructible person out there as well, you right?
1: Oh, you're indestructible, you know everything, <laughs> off you off you're gonna go. And little do you know when you land in the land in the police. But um so it was a huge, huge learning curve for me, huge learning curve, but it was fantastic and um I did I was very lucky because I had a fantastic career. Um I loved my job. Um it wasn't something I'd always wanted to do, nothing like that at all. Came about it a little bit by chance right. and so I was very lucky to um have a brilliant response um crew sergeants all that sort of stuff for many years so i um was in uniform response at first it was for about six years then i went to um local cid and then i went to um force cid um around the west mid so i yeah so i i did have a fantastic career and i did love it i would say it became my as i think policing can do became my identity yeah. um definitely a passion of mine uh yeah I just definitely have found my career in life um but as as I'm sure you know and as probably many people know who's listening it also took its toll um on, on me as it does on on many um and that was starting to affect me probably in the in the last few years before I I left in in the end in 2013 um and so yes yeah, so nearly 15 years really and it had really started to take its toll on me. I will say, Carl. no, you know, a lot of people talk about PTSD. People talk about trauma that the police see. But I would say for me, it was a real drip, drip effect. Yes. So I did, there wasn't sort of something overnight that I thought, oh, this isn't for me or this is something particularly awful had happened to me. Um, I had a real drip, drip effect of going downhill, I'd say. Um, mentally, emotionally, physically, probably for about two years. I mean, it
0: really resonates with me when you talk about the drip, drip effect. And I think that's such a a powerful, but yet simple way of explaining it. You literally expose day in, day out to different kinds of challenging scenarios what did that feel like for you, Hannah, going through it? Because, you know, we're going to talk about it in the context of policing, but there are so many other organisations um, and some of these could be literally desk, desk-bound uh, jobs in organisations, but they're still exposed to some level of trauma, of challenge and that drip-drip effect that you're talking about can still resonate with other people and demonstrate itself in other people as well can't it so what did it feel like for you what was that drip drip
1: so what it felt like for me looking back is um and I think you're so right Cole to say it's not just about policing because for me it was also that I was having problems at home for example as well so I think it's sometimes when I think we're actually quite resilient as human beings I think we can take quite a bit but I think it's when it's all piling up and it was piling up at work it was piling up around the culture at work as well so inside the job as well as what they're seeing outside the job and then it was piling up at home as well so I think for me there was no um there was no real place to put it all down there was no real place where um everything felt fine or perhaps everywhere I was maybe doing a good job or something like that There was there was obstacles there was stresses there was um Difficulties at every place, and I think that is something that then really starts to take its toll
0: on people. I think this is fascinating because, and the reason why it's so fascinating, Hannah, is because we're looking at it from different, two different perspectives. I mean, for me, I, I, I went on to become a senior police officer, you went, you were at the front line all that time, um, and I think it's so easy for us to assume that, A, the senior officers have got it easy, or we might say, well, the the frontline officers have got it easy. And it's the same in any other organisation. But we're talking about something very human. And for me, this is really fascinating to understand. Because, of course, the, 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 the job, as we call the police service, you know, if you've been in the police service, you call it the job. The job really had an impact on me. As you're talking, I'm reflecting on you know, the divorce that I went through and the the complications at home, the hours that I spent at work and how I would literally drop everything to, to go and deal with the next crisis at work. And and I put it before anything else in my life. And I'm guessing it was something quite similar with you.
1: Also, Cole, what's really important that you're saying about that human sort of element is um, when I do, I actually talk about my experience as well. And I go and do talks in the police. And one of the turning points for me, where sort of almost like a little light went out inside of me around these things, so as I said, you, you've heard how I said how I loved it so much. And one of the, the, the times that a little light went out for me was in 2010. And Westmids went through something called Paragon. And Paragon was a, a huge change across the whole force. I remember it. Do you? Yeah. And what ultimately the basis of Paragon was, certainly for detectives, which I was at the time, is they took every single detective across the whole force, no matter your experience, no matter your interests, no matter your skill set. And you will know Cole that the diversity that could be for detective roles um across the force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hugely diverse. Um and what they did is they put us really all in a bit of a melting pot and they didn't pull names out of a hat, but how it felt like it's pulled names out of a hat and you would go where you were put. And it, it even though they said you could have a say on that, that wasn't um, that wasn't something that you could enforce. So you could sort of say, I'd like to do this, but they wouldn't necessarily uh, support that. And what I realised in that is that um, people got moved from, let's say, a specialist organised crime team organized crime gang team to um, adult um, public protection let's say and they are completely different skill sets completely different roles interests passions and so on and I myself got moved um, I didn't I got moved teams and I got moved stations um, and I got moved roles so similar-ish roles but 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 um, different roles and a little light went out in me because I realized that we were starting to be treated as, and it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it, but like a number, rather than actually what is this officer's passion? What is their strength and their skills? What are they delivering to those victims when, when the victims pick up the phone? Um, and that had sort of gone out the window. What
0: you're giving us is, is an example of how um, miscommunicated strategies the impact that they can have on the front line and how they make people feel. And I'm, you know, I'm all about culture. Uh, and and I've seen it all too often in the police service and in other organisations where decisions are made for the right reasons at a very strategic end of the organisations, but how they're communicated and then how they're delivered to the front line is awful. And, and what I'm trying to say to uh, organisations that I work with It's the emotions that you're talking about right now. I was made to feel like a number. I lost that, you know, a bit of a a light, blue light in me went out and all of this kind of stuff. That's exactly what we need to avoid uh, in organisations. If if anything, what we need to do in organisations is switch on as many lights as we possibly can to inspire and motivate our staff to do even better. And if I remember Paragon, I mean, I wasn't in the same police force as you, but I do remember uh, having some conversations around. I'm sure that was, A, all around the austerity measures uh, that were going around the whole of the UK, all public sector organisations were trying to make savings as a result of the financial crisis in 2008. And there's also something around, I think, what West Midlands Police were trying to do was introduce tenure Uh, back into policing, tenure is where, you know, you work in a particular role for X amount of years and then after that you have to move on. And I think uh, it was quite heavy-handed really, quite quite clumsy and heavy-handed the way it was done by the sounds of it. But if it's had that impact on you, imagine the impact that it's had on so many other frontline officers.
1: What I do know is that every time I do this talk, every time the feedback afterwards is, I remember Paragon. That's how right. I felt it really resonated so, and you'll you'll hear from me sort of moving on i have I have other things that I talk about and you know that sort of change my my view on policing and what happened to me, but Paragon is what people say on LinkedIn on you know they come up to me after talks and say that's exactly how I felt in Paragon, so you're so right, Paul that we have to sometimes these decisions have to be made like you said, strategic decisions have to be made but but the communication of it. And the actual practical application of it is so important to people who are doing that job.
0: That was an incredible time for a lot of public sector organisations in the United Kingdom. We had to make millions of pounds of savings uh, just to meet the austerity measures. So that is like, you know, big change processes. And in that change process, we need to manage that change as best as we can. And communication for me is like the number one thing that we have to get right. And, and what you're saying is the communication wasn't right. And and I don't want to, you know, say this was West Midlands police because many other police forces were also doing something similar, driving some other change, and yeah, so were other organisations yeah. in the public sector. And a lot of staff were saying the kind of things that you were saying. I remember in my own force in Derbyshire how, you know, our police headquarters was one of the friendliest police headquarters you could ever go into. We had a reputation in Derbyshire that it was like a family and people knew each other people would talk to each other, but we're... By the time that I left, people would be walking around headquarters with their heads down because you didn't know if you're going to have your job. You didn't know if, uh, if if there were going to be any more cuts. It was it was so demoralized. It was like a ghost town. It was, it was sad. It
1: was sad, wasn't it? It was a sad period of time. And, and and definitely for me, as I said, because I was somebody that loved my job so much and gave so much to my job. And I, I don't mean that move completely wiped it out for me Cole because that you know it wasn't enough to sort of make me go but it was definitely a change for me started a change yeah part of yeah part of that drip drip effect um but then it moved on um and I'm sure you sort of recognize this theme but um, being under-resourced um and overwhelmed with work I was um I dealt with a lot of rape and sexual violence dealt with a lot of child victims and witnesses of crime a lot of historical sex abuse so an enormous amount of that, as you said, that human element needed every on an extreme level every single day and every single shift. But when we talk about the, the human side of it, Cole, I think before, I dealt with that quite well, because I felt we had the resources yes. and the support of the criminal justice system, not all the time, but a lot of the time, to move those cases forward, to look at justice for some of those victims, to give time to those victims, all the things that really, really mattered to me. And again, that started to change. So that human element started to get replaced with policy, procedure, counting rules, things that, you know, might be necessary for for strategy, for organisations, but that's not how human beings thrive. We don't thrive on procedure and a statistic. An accounting rule.
0: We we went through something though, and and a lot of organisations do this, where they hide behind policy or KPIs, and everything becomes very process driven and very mechanistic, doesn't it? And the more mechanistic you become, the less human you are going to become as an organisation. You lose your personality and your culture within that, and and that's sort of what you're describing, isn't it?
1: Hundred percent. I know. Uh, for I'd say about the last two years before I was in the job, I never truly felt like I helped anybody properly fully and that was a massive blow to me because it was such an important part of policing for me and so I think we can actually deal with an awful lot of exposure to trauma I think we can be very resilient but you have to add in the you you almost have to add in more human elements for policing or other jobs that are exposed to that sort of um, that sort of uh, trauma or those sort of roles you have to add more human element in to balance it out properly and for the police it was getting less and less and less of the human element side.
0: I find that incredibly frustrating and sad at the same time in the sense that uh, I I absolutely agree with you that we need to understand the human element in in the people that uh, work within any organisation including the police service and, and also understand and take that leap of faith to understand that the more we do for the people, the more they will probably do in terms of delivery on performance. Um, but because it's not measurable and it's not driven by any any KPIs and it's, it's a big, it takes some courage to make that decision. But there's lots of anecdotal evidence, isn't there? That um, if your people aren't right, the performance is never going to be right. And you're talking about that. There you were, a very keen police officer, very, uh, you know, saw it as a vocation, but the the light started going out step by step. What could we do to bring the light back? Or even to maintain the light in, 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 in people in organisations?
1: Yeah, to maintain the light. I was having a think before we did the podcast, because I was thinking about, you know, you said about human-centred leadership. and And I think it should be the, Form of leadership that you never ever need a research study to say we know that that is what will be the best way to do it. We'll never need statistics for that, we'll never, and you said we won't get it with statistics, you will not get it with research, but if you can't run some leadership and, and most of our leadership on your gut instinct, on common sense, on your heart and your brain, if you can't bring it all together to deliver you won't. you can't ever deliver human-centered leadership if you constantly run it on statistics and research you can't I'm not saying there's no importance in that of course there is but we don't, we don't need research to tell us how to be human beings.
0: Fundamentally for me, uh, th- there are skills within policing that you need to learn, right? There, I mean, I was a, a goal commander. I needed to go on a whole host of programs and courses to teach me how to be the very best goal commander that I could be. Or, and you would have had to go on programs and courses to learn how to be a detective. I had to go on programs to learn how to be an SIO, et etc. et cetera. But then the application of those skills... Is not something that you are taught. It's not a skill set that you pick up. This is emotional intelligence in practice. It's the application. We can all go to you know university and, and get the top qualifications, but what separates us is how we apply that knowledge in the workplace. And, and that, for me, is all human centered leadership. It's all emotional intelligence, and that's where you're coming from. And you know you statistics, data, analytics is not necessarily what drives that.
1: I don't think it will ever hugely drive us as human beings, if I'm honest, Cole. I think it can drive, Mm. um, it can look at performance, it can look at where you might put funding, it can look at where you might put training, um, 100%. I don't think it will ever drive us as a human being. And I think I, I can look back at some of the teams. As I said, I was very lucky. So I can look back at some of the leaders I had and how they took us as a team, and they didn't treat us all the same. And I don't mean in terms of equality. I mean in yeah. who did that job, who was good at that job, who looked after us all, who would be the person to kick the door in, Who you know, and, and they absolutely took all our strengths as a team and worked them brilliantly. Um, but also, Carl, just some real basics. I can remember um, an inspector we had, and each month he'd sort of almost do his own awards thing and he'd do an award for, and sometimes it was the most prisoners, but sometimes it was the, um, you know, the best interview. Sometimes it was the best teamwork. Sometimes mm. it was the best blag. You know, we'd have a bit of fun with it as well, but we felt like that inspector had bothered about his team as people.
0: I did something similar when I took over the content management department where the call center and the contact center was and, I used to have this employee of the month type thing, but it was, it was somebody who's voted by their own peers uh, for whatever it might be. And, and like you, it wasn't something specific. It could be the, the happiest person, uh, the person that makes me the most happy. So something yeah, like that, you know, actually, and we, what, what like. we used to do, we'd, te- we'd take their photograph and we'd put it on this this wall that we'd created. And so you'd have this wall full of photos. The idea was eventually I wanted everybody's photo on there. So everyone felt included. But my senior colleagues used to, you know, in private conversations or in meetings, used to th- they really take the mickey out of what we were trying to achieve and didn't get it, didn't understand it. You know, why are you doing that? How silly is that? And and that for me was a real eye-opener in terms of how a lot of leaders uh, won't get it. They won't understand where you're coming from necessarily. Um, and that's not to say that they don't, they're not emotionally intelligent. Not everybody is at the same starting point I guess uh, and not everybody sees everything the way you see it which it can be a good thing you know in terms of cognitive diversity and things like that so for for you there was a, a lot going on wasn't there uh, there were other things that happened in your life in your career that you know caused lights to start flickering out what else would you say created that that eventual sort of you leaving the police service decision
1: um so as I said sort of mentally and emotionally, I was going downhill. I didn't recognise that as mental health. That wasn't talked about in the police at all. So I didn't recognise that. But then I also got physically ill as well and um, had breast cancer. Um, So that was back in 2011. And I was off long-term sick. Uh, Something that, again, was another light bulb, Carl, is that as awful as that was and that diagnosis was, the other thing I felt was relieved. And I was just so relieved that I was off work.
0: You were relieved that you'd got cancer so that you could be away from work. And that's,
1: that showed me kind of where, Hannah, that's where life is, that you are relieved that, um, probably not relieved I got cancer, but relieved that I wasn't going into work every day and that I didn't have to face those jobs and, and the people and find that kindness and compassion for everybody else except me again. And, and I was, I was relieved. And the other thing I would say con as well, and this is, this is to do with the please culture, but I'm sure is in many other business cultures is that I was relieved that I had a good enough reason to be off sick.
0: I was just going to say, I was just phrasing it in my head. You felt relieved that you had a legitimate reason.
1: And I would not have gone off with stress or whatever it was I've been struggling with before. And as I said, I didn't really recognize that, but I wouldn't have done. Do
0: you think this is true of a lot of people that they wait too long until they get really ill because they don't want to be seen to be going off with stress. So they wait and they wait and then something big happens. And then they feel this yeah, relief.
1: hundred percent. And it, it, I think the narrative is changing a little bit now, bit by bit. And again, that drip, drip thing, we can only do it bit by bit, can't we? So it is changing bit by bit, but it's uh, it's still very much the case that we wait and wait and wait until we're on our knees really whether that's through mental health, whether it's through, you know, problems at home, whether it's through your physical health.
0: You're still working with police forces now. Is it specifically police forces that you're you're doing some work with around culture change, around wellbeing?
1: Yeah, mate. I do work with the emergency services. So I do work with, um, NHS staff as well, mm-hmm. but yes, in terms of going into forces, it is with police forces. So
0: what's the language, what's the rhetoric that's going on? How well are you accepted now when you try to walk in through those doors into a police organization and say, Hey, I want to help you with your mental, with your well-being of your staff?
1: Uh, generally speaking from a senior management position, you're welcomed. I will say that. Um, if I'm going to be honest, is there probably two different types of welcome. I think there's a welcome where they know they have to tick that box and do it. And then there's a genuine welcome and that there is a difference.
0: Uh, that resonates. I, I, I get that.
1: But I think that would be all organisations, Colin. And that narrative, again, is changing and is getting better. I would say week by week it's getting better, which is that is a positive. Yeah, it is. Um If I do talks and workshops with, it depends who you do it with, doesn't it, always, but with um, frontline operational DCs, DSs, PCs, PSs, at first there's definitely resistance to that. Um, If I'm honest, I think because I'm from the police and my personal story, that helped break that down um, almost immediately. You can feel that energy change in the room, 100%. So that helps that probably I have that credibility a little bit of understanding their role. but honestly, by the end, pretty much university call it's really positive and really accepting and really positive and genuinely wanting to, wanting to make some changes and realising they probably should make some changes, you know, a bit of both.
0: Yeah, I, I'm really encouraged by that, though, Hannah. And, you know, one thing I will say about the police service, I genuinely believe that there is a desire within the police service and organisations. Most senior leaders have this desire to create... Organisations where people, everyone feels valued, but it, the, that that simple word of feeling valued is very complex in its delivery. It's multifaceted, very very complex, and one of the one of the elements of it is the work that you do around well being. People need to feel psychologically safe in that environment, and, and I think the challenge with the police services, we are often faced with physical dangers and psycho- psychological dangers outside of the work that we do, the, the challenge is, are we psychologically safe when we're inside, back inside the building of the police station? And that's always been a big question for me. And if you don't feel psychologically safe inside the building, then that should be alarm bells ringing, shouldn't it?
1: I agree. And I think that's creating more of the mental health and wellbeing problems in the police than possibly what they deal with outside and that's a a big statement I know I'm not saying that it doesn't take its toll because of course it does but as you said if you have got support if you've got backup if you've got trust if you've got open communication within your organization then they have a safe space to come and dump all that stuff from the outside and then I think we create much more resilience but if that breaks down then you just, um, it just, it it literally all stays in, doesn't it? It stays inside. Where would
0: you say you got most of your emotional support from within the police service?
1: From my team originally at the start would be my absolute sort of colleagues and team. And my sergeants was very lucky with my sergeants. I think part of my problem is I didn't have that um, in my move under Paragon. This isn't a blame game either, is it? No.
0: Absolutely now. It's a learning game.
1: Yeah, it's a learning game. And I wasn't bullied or anything like that. This was, um, again, I think a result of Paragon because what happened is, is every single detective moved on the same day. So you literally, let's say our team was 15, about 10 of those people were new to the team and had come from all different places, possibly didn't want to move. So there was some resistance there. The sergeants didn't know us. The inspectors didn't know us. We didn't know that the building, the the telephone numbers, where the custody block was, where the toilet was, where the, you know, we, you didn't know anything. And that's fine when you're one new person and the whole team is sort of settled and they'll help you and you will all support each other. This was 10 new people running around like headless chickens a bit. So it was that support mechanism that I'd had in the sort of 12 years prior to that literally almost disappeared overnight. And it really matters. The people on your team, the people that you talk to the people that you're going to those sort of jobs with, it really matters that that you like and trust one another as much as possible. I know you can't all love each other, but as much as possible. Yeah.
0: And that's about creating the right culture within your team, within your organization, within your department. You build that trusting culture. And I always say that trust is the foundation of any good functioning team. If you haven't got trust there, you haven't got a lot of the other constituent parts of function, functionality within teams. If you were to, you know, um, go back to where you were, would you have done anything different? Is that, do you think, do you feel sometimes that I wish I'd done this and I wish I'd done that? Is, is there anything that you feel you could have done Uh, to maybe improve things, move things in the right direction?
1: Yeah, 100%. Don't mean in terms of of regret. I try not to do that. And the situation is as it is, and you've got to learn from that. But yes, 100%, it's important to go back and look and learn. And I have a slide I use in my talk, um, and it says on it, your wound is not your fault, but your healing is your responsibility. I love that. It's really, really important, Cole, because we do talk about the organisation, we do talk about funding, we do talk about resource, we do talk about culture and it's important but ultimately, ultimately, my health was and is my responsibility. So me being a human being and what it matters to me being a human being and what makes me feel good, what makes me feel well, what helps me connect is my responsibility at the bottom
0: line. I, I really, really love that. I'm going to repeat that uh, j- just for the, the, the audience there. that. Your wound is not your fault, but your healing is your responsibility. Uh, and it's so similar to something that I would say when I talk about leadership and I'm delivering one of my programs. I say, look, one of your fundamental responsibilities as a leader is to look after you. If you don't look after yourself, then you're not going to give the best of yourself to those around you. And that's your fundamental responsibility as a leader, you know. Uh, so I love that phrase. Yeah.
1: And, and and it's so true, Cole, because I didn't speak up and ask for help. That was my responsibility. I didn't. I didn't, you know, if people had asked me if I was all right and happy, I probably would have said, yeah, because I wouldn't have even stopped for a minute to check if I was all right and to check if I was happy. And that's my stuff. That's my responsibility to do that.
0: So if you were to send this message out to you know, other other police officers out there or, or people in the emergency services or in any organisation, to be quite honest, um, where they are feeling that their lights are going out, as you described it, where they are feeling under pressure, where they are feeling under mental trauma or anxiety or some kind of a, 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 an adverse impact on their mental health. What would you say is the number one thing that they should be doing?
1: Talking about it.
0: Talking about it talking about it to anybody that you can do.
1: I'd pick carefully who I talk to about (laughs) it. I would maybe have a little thought over who I talk to, but what I will say, it doesn't mean necessarily that you have to go for therapy. That's obviously something I do. And I did do for myself too. And it was fantastic, but that's not for everybody. Um, But it just even sharing the words to somebody else that things aren't great brings it out to your own awareness i think once we speak things and once we talk and we share it stops having the same power over you that it does when it's um i'm going to use another quote sorry but another quote is you're only ever as sick as your secret and when we keep it in and it's a secret and we can't tell anybody and we're ashamed or we're frightened it will it will have so much power over you um and not a good power over you yeah
0: well, I love old, old fashioned uh, phrases and quotes and analogies, and I'm just going to share one with you. A problem shared is a problem halved. And I think that's sort of where you coming from. There's a lot of wisdom in these old sayings, isn't there? Um, and, and, and yes, organizations have got a long way to go. All organizations, we need to be constantly vigilant, vigilant on the people side of our businesses If we don't look after our people, then our people can't really work to their nth degree and their full potential, can't deliver the kind of performance that you want. And from the perspective of the people, anybody that might be going through challenging times, please learn to talk to people. Learn to share your innermost secrets, uh, as you call it, your innermost pain, if you like, and and you'll find that it lightens you. But unless you talk to people, nobody can support you through that. Uh, And in most organisations, there are some departments, some units that you can talk to. Maybe they're underused, I don't know. But, you know, reach out to these professionals within your organisation. Or if you have to reach outside of your organisation to get the care and uh, support that you need. Hannah, I want to thank you so much for sharing your journey with us, your thoughts, your wisdom. Uh, It's been awesome. And I've particularly enjoyed it because I'm hearing of the frontline impact resulting from some of the big decisions that organizations make and this is not about the police service it just so happens that we're both police officers we have been police officers but this is about any organization it happens in all sorts of organizations across the world and thank you so much thank you thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content and of course connect with me on linkedin take care have a great day